Uh, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and uh, open it to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, or if you have your phone, you can do that. We'll have the verses on the screen behind me uh, as well, but we'll read from that in just a few moments. But um, if you've been uh, with us here at Grace Hill for uh, the last several weeks, um, you know that one of the topics that we've been talking about a lot from the scriptures is this idea of the kingdom of God. And so we were studying the Gospel of Luke, and we were largely looking at what is the kingdom of God, because Jesus kept saying that he was bringing God's kingdom here. And so we are studying, well, what is God's kingdom? And then over the last several weeks, we've been in a sermon series uh, out of Romans chapter 12 called uh, A Delight to Be Around. And that was all about, okay, if, if we are a part of God's kingdom as followers of Jesus, and if we've been brought into God's kingdom through what Christ has done for us, then one of the things that God has called us to do here is to represent his kingdom. And so we went to Romans 12, and we looked at how do we represent God's kingdom to the world through our conduct, through our attitude, through the way uh, that we live our lives. And, and as we were talking through that, how, how our conduct displays God's kingdom to the world, one of the things that was inside of me that I, I kept on wanting to go to and I want to spend some time talking about is that following God's commands, taking God's ways seriously, and, and trying to live according to the ways that he's called us to, it's not just about displaying his kingdom to the world. It is that but it's also something that God has given us and commanded us to for our joy. That God knows as our creator and designer that if we live according to his ways, that we will flourish. That, that we will have joy because he knows how he built us and his ways are good. And so I've been wanting to dig into God's commands and just go, what does it look like that all of these commands, all of these things that God has called us to, they are actually for our joy? And so what we're going to do today is we're going to start a summer sermon series on the Ten Commandments. On the Ten Commandments. So it will be a ten-part series. And we're going to go through the Ten Commandments starting with uh, number one today. But before we jump in, you might just go, okay, real quick, give me uh, the, a quick snapshot on what are uh, the Ten Commandments. Obviously, most people, especially in our culture, know what the Ten Commandments are. All these thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. All right, there are a list of things that we should do or shouldn't do that we're going to work through together as a church. But largely, what the Ten Commandments are in the Old Testament is they are a summary of basically God's ways, a summary of how God has called us to live our life. For the nation of Israel, they were a summary of kind of the covenant stipulations that God has put on this covenant that he made with his people. That, that God was going to be our God and he was going to rescue us and that he calls us then to live in a certain way as a part of that covenant. And these Ten Commandments summarize that for us. They're given to us first in Exodus chapter 20. So in your Old Testament, you have the nation of Israel. 
right? They were enslaved in Egypt. God rescued them from that slavery that's early in the book of Exodus. He leads them out, parts the Red Sea, gets them out of there. And the first stop they go to really is Mount Sinai, this, this mountain, all right, on the Sinai Peninsula. And they stop there and God makes a covenant with Israel there. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my law. I'm going to give you my ways. This is how I want you to live. Because where God was leading his people was to the promised land, to this land that they would inhabit and they would flourish. And so God's saying, we're on our way there. And so when you get there, when you get to the promised land, here's how I want you to live. And he gives them the law and he gives them the Ten Commandments. We also see the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So this is after Israel wandered through the desert. It took them about 40 years to get there. Not because it takes 40 years to get from Egypt to the promised land, but God just had them wander for a bit. We'll actually talk about that in a second. But it takes 40 years to get there. And the book of Deuteronomy is a sermon that Moses preaches to all of Israel right at the doorstep of the promised land. And they're about to go into the promised land. And it's kind of a big reminder. Hey, Here's the covenant that God has made with you, all right? And here's the law. Here's how God is calling you to live when you inhabit the promised land. And we get the Ten Commandments again. So they act as a summary of this law, of, this, uh, of all the ways that God has called his people to live. And so we're going to study that together. And here's my prayer for this series. It's really twofold. Uh, First, my prayer as we dig into these commands over the next 10 weeks is that you will be convinced and that I will be convinced that God has the right and the authority to dictate to us what is good. That God has the right and the authority to dictate to us what is moral and what is right. We live in a culture that says that no one has the right to dictate to us what we should believe, what we should think, how we should feel, or what is good and right and moral. We live in a culture that wants to tell you that you should be able to come up with that all by yourself, that no one has the right to dictate that to you, and that whatever you want to believe is true, whatever you want to believe is right, whatever you want to believe is moral— that's cool because you have the right to do that. And I hope that as we dig into these commands that we see, wait, no, actually, God is the one who has the right. God is the one who has the authority to dictate those things to us. That we actually get our morality and the ways that we should live our life, not internally, but actually externally from God himself. That's the first thing I hope happens in this series. But here's the second thing I hope happens in this series is that we will see that God always wields that authority and that power. He always wields it for our good, for our joy, and our flourishing. I hope that God convinces all of us through his word that all of his commands, every last one of them, are for our joy that he knows how we should live. He built us, he designed us, he knows what will make our souls flourish. He's given that to us in his scripture. And I just hope as we unpack these that we'll see the goodness of God in giving us these commands. 
All right, so let's just jump in. Exodus chapter 20, that's where we get the first list of the Ten Commandments. And let's read the first one together. But I need to give us some context here in Exodus chapter 20. I already told you that uh, Israel was now at Mount Sinai. They had just been rescued from Egypt, from their slavery. They're out Mount, at Mount Sinai, and Moses keeps on walking up the mountain and hearing from the Lord and coming down and telling the people what he heard. And so let me do this. Let me read a little, uh, verse 1 for you, Exodus 20, verse 1. And I just want you, before we get into the meat of it, I want you to visualize what this experience would be like for the Israelites. Okay? Exodus 20, verse 1. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying. Now, so we're going to stop there. That's verse 1. You have to understand, end of Exodus 19, Moses just came down from the mountain. And so when it says that God spoke all these words, his audience is not just Moses. It's the entire nation of Israel. All right, so God is kind of somewhere in the midst of Mount Sinai and booming over it. And here's how we know that. Jump past the Ten Commandments to verse 18. It says this. This is so uh, God just got done giving the Ten Commandments. Then verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking... The people were afraid and trembled, of course, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So what we get here is, right, Moses comes down from the mountain, end of Exodus 19 and 20. Then God booms the Ten Commandments from that mountain so that everyone hears it. Because God wanted them to know who these commands were coming from. Okay? So that's kind of the setting. That's the environment. If you can try to visualize what that would be like. All right, and so then we get to verse 2, Exodus 20, verse 2, and, and before God gives the first commandment, which is going to be in verse 3, what he's going to do is he's going to establish who he is, who his people are, and what that relationship is between two, the, them two. That's in verse 2. All right, let's break that down real quick. It's so important that we get this, all right? Uh, I was just thinking before uh, we started this that, you know, last week we did, um, we started a sermon series with our elders that's going to kind of sporadically be throughout the summer too called This First Changed My Life. Um, and each of the elders are going to get up and they're going to talk about a passage of scripture that God has used in significant ways. If I preach a This First Changed My Life sermon, it, it very well be might be Exodus 20 verse 2, what we're about to dig into here. Look at verse 2. God says this, so he's booming from the mountain. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All right, that's verse two. We're gonna break that verse down before we hit the first command in verse three. There's, there's three things I need you to see here in verse two that are so important. All right, the first thing that you need to see is how God refers to himself He says there, I 
am the Lord. I am the Lord. In your Bible, if you see the word Lord there in all caps, all right, that's your Bible telling you that in Hebrew, what is there is the word Yahweh, which is the name of God. Okay, so whenever you see Lord in all caps, the name of God is being used. Okay, and God gives himself this name in Exodus chapter 3 when he's with Moses uh, at the burning bush. And, and what this word really means, this name really means is, I am who I am. Or you could translate it, I am who I will always be. I am who has always been. All right, this is God's way of saying in the, in the very nature of his name that he is the uncreated one. That he's the eternal one. He's the creator of all things. He's the maker of everything that you and I see and experience. And he is the designer and creator of your soul. So God immediately establishes his authority when it comes to dictating what is the right way to live. Why? Because he's creator. He's uncreated. He's eternal. He's been around a lot longer than any of us have been. And so let's not fly past the name of God because God there is establishing his authority. And it's easy in our English Bibles to kind of fly past that because we just see the word Lord there. But he's saying, I am Yahweh. Second thing I want you to see is he says, I am the Lord, your God. Your God. This is the Hebrew word Elohim. But what's interesting is that uh, it's got a, I, I'm not great at grammar, so just hang with me for a second. It's got a second person singular suffix on that word. Here's what I mean by that. All right, this is where English we can get tripped up as well. What God is saying here, he's not saying, I am the Lord, y'all's God. He's not saying that. All right, Hebrews got second person singular pronouns and second person plural pronouns. We have that in the South, but not everywhere, right? So he's saying, I am the Lord, your singular God. And they would have heard that to mean a personal singular type of pronoun, God. Uh, I am your God. And so what scholars say about this is that when God says this, he's being very intentional to say, no, I'm, I'm your God. Each of you individually. I know you, I created you, and my commands, they're not just to you as a nation and a community, they are, but they're to you personally because they will make you flourish. So you have to understand this, the relational, personal nature of God here. So we have Yahweh, the one who's always been, who's giving us these commands. He's your God and your God, and he's my God and then he says at the end of verse 2, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Immediately, before we get one command, God is saying that these commands, they're not stipulations to earn salvation from me. Why? Because I already saved you from Egypt. These commands, they're not stipulation to earn favor from me, blessing from me, love from me. Why? Because I've already shown favor to you. I've already blessed you. I've already expressed my love 
to you. God already displayed these things to Israel. So what this does is it puts these commands in perspective. These are not commands that we obey to earn God's love. No, these are commands we obey in response to God's love, which automatically helps us to understand the motivation that God has behind these commands. They're not arbitrary commands so that we can earn his love or that we can prove who's the best. They are commands that come right out of God's heart of love for you, meaning these are for your joy. They're for your flourishing. God is literally saying to Israel, I already rescued you from slavery. I'm taking you to the promised land where you're going to flourish. And these commands are about your joy and your flourishing as you serve me in the promised land. They are an expression of his love for us. Like I think about when I give commands to my kids Like when I give the command, no, you can't waste away in front of a screen every day, all day, right? I don't give those commands to my kids because it's arbitrary. I don't give that command to my kids because I'm trying to kill their fun and their joy. No, I, I literally give it to them because I'm after their flourishing and their joy. I know that that's not good for them and their souls and their minds. And so I give them this command because I love them and I know more than them. I've lived life a little bit longer. And one of the things God is saying is I'm Yahweh, which means I've lived longer than you. Actually, I made you. So I know what's good for you so much more than you know what's good for you. And so like a father or a mother gives these commands and directives to their children out of love because they're after their joy. That is the exact motivation that we see here in Exodus chapter 20. These are commands from a loving father who is after our joy. All right, so that's the context that we have to set up before we just jump into the list that we get through the next several verses of 10 different commands. And so let's jump into the first command. Exodus chapter 20 in verse 3. So knowing that these are for our joy, God says this, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, this is not God saying that other gods exist and he's competing with them. What this is saying is that you shall not let anything in life, another person, uh, an idea, an institution, anything, serve in the place of God in your life. That, That God solely wants the role of God in your life. Like, what do we look to God for? What would it look like for something or someone to play the role of God in our life. Well, we look to God for protection in a broken world. We look to God for answers and guidance when we need them. We look to God for value, to, to know who we are and, and, and what we should think about ourselves, right? We, we look to God as, as the thing that we trust in the midst of a world that we can't control. And God is saying, I want to be the one that you trust for everything. 
the one that you trust to know what is true, the one that you trust for protection and deliverance, the one that you trust for uh, deciding what is good and what is not good, anything, that's the role that I play in your life. Why? Because I am your God. That, that is who I am. You know, it's interesting in Exodus 19, go back one chapter, they're at Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain, hears from God, comes down, says a few things to Israel, um, and he basically goes up the mountain, he comes down in the beginning of the chapter, and he says, listen, God's going to give us the law, and he's going to give us these commands. And God is, is demanding, right, that, that, that we follow his commands, and that he would be our God, and that, that we would be his people. And look at Exodus 19, verse 8. It says, all the people answered together to Moses when he said this, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. What, what the people of Israel essentially did in Exodus 19 is said, yes. Yes and amen to commandment number one. That, that God will solely be our God. That we won't look to any other gods. Like, yes, we will do that. We believe in that commandment. Have you ever made a promise to God before? Like, you've ever made a promise, like, God, I, I, I'm going I'm to read my Bible every single morning, like, from this point forward, right? Like, how many years have you been alive? How many January 1st have you hit, right? How many times we've made that promise? Or, or God, I'm not going to look at those things anymore. Or, or God, I'm going I'm to kind of get out of some of these relationships that I know are pulling me away from you. Have you ever made a promise to God, and in the moment you believed down to your bones that you were going to keep that promise, and that you were going to follow God's ways, and that you trusted God, and you believed that this would be good for you? Well, this is what Israel does in Exodus 19. They, they basically promise God, we are going to follow you. You will be our only God. We won't look to anything else to be our God. And that promise lasted about 12 chapters, probably less than that. All right, you get to Exodus chapter 32. Here's an example. And Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's still up there. God, it was a big law that God was giving Moses, so it took a while for God to do that. And Israel was, where's Moses? They, didn't, they hadn't seen him in several days. They were starting to get worried. They're out in the wilderness. And so what do they do? They go to their priest, Aaron, and they say, let's do what we've seen other nations do, like Egypt. Let's carve out ourselves a golden calf and worship that. And maybe that will do something for us. Maybe that will protect us in the wilderness. And so 12 chapters later, because there was fear in the midst of the wilderness, Israel went to another god a God that would not deliver them, right? Or you could fast forward over to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14 explains to us why it took 40 years for Israel to get to the promised land. Because in Numbers chapter 14, um, as they were approaching the promised land, they got right on, the, right on the doorstep of the promised land. They just needed to go in, cross the border. They sent two spies in there, Caleb and Joshua, and Caleb and Joshua came back and said, those boys are big in there. And I'm not sure how this is going to go when we go into the promised land. And so all of Israel got scared. And they said, appoint for us new leadership, old leadership. Moses, you're out. We don't trust God when it comes to going into the promised land. We're just going to get killed. And so they diverted their path. They went to another God. They said, God, we don't trust you with your plan and your ways. 
And God said, okay, this generation's gonna die out and you're gonna wander for 40 years and then you'll go in. Or you go to 1 Samuel chapter eight. Uh, Israel, they're in the promised land. They're flourishing. Their nation has been established. God's promises have come true. God's been faithful for, for centuries. And they come to Samuel, their judge, and they say, Samuel, we want a king like all the other nations have a king. Because we see that nation has a king and that nation has a king. And those kings protect their nation. They build up armies. Those kings build up wealth. They, they, they project power and strength to the world. And we want to project power and strength to the world. So appoint for us a king. And Samuel goes to God and God says, Samuel, they didn't reject you. They rejected me. Because they don't trust me to protect them. They don't trust me to be the one that leads them. And so Samuel, God tells Samuel, go tell Israel what will happen if you point yourself a king. And Samuel says to Israel, listen, if you point yourself a king, he's gonna tax you and enrich himself. He's gonna take your sons and make them fight his battles and, and be around his chariots. And he's going to abuse his power and authority over you. And Israel said, we want it. They went to another God, right? So throughout Israel's history, Whenever things got hard, whenever their loyalty and their faithfulness to God was tested, they went to another God. They reached for other gods, just always breaking the first commandment. God is saying, listen, I want you to live under my rule, according to my ways, under my authority and my word. And I want you to trust that what I say is good and for your joy. And the people are constantly saying, no, we only trust ourselves. I only trust my gut when things get hard. And isn't that Genesis chapter three? Isn't that the garden? You have God who creates everything. You have Adam and Eve. Everything's perfect. It's paradise. There's no sin. And God says, you just can't eat of this tree. You just get, it's for your good. Just trust me. Right? And the serpent comes along. The enemy finds the, the perfect end to be able to tempt Adam and Eve with this idea. What if God actually isn't good? What if he's actually holding back? What if this command is actually not for your joy? Imagine if you could be the one that decides what's for your joy and not for your joy. Imagine if you could have that responsibility in your life. And so that's what Eve does. She, she reaches for the tree because she wants to be equal with God. She doesn't want to be under the care of God. That's exactly what the first sin is. It's looking to other gods other than trusting in the only and one true God himself. And this is how the Apostle Paul defines that in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. He says, they, that's just all of us, right, exchanged the truth about God for a lie. The truth was that he's after our joy, that he's good, that he has the authority to give us these commands. But they exchanged that for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, the created things, other gods, rather than the creator. See, what's interesting about commandment number one, the first one that we get, is that you can't follow any of the other commandments without following the first commandment. 
Because the first commandment gets straight to the heart. Do we believe God is good? Do we believe he's trustworthy? Do do we ascribe to him the place of he's the one who knows more than me? He's wiser than I am. His way is far more informed than my way. And so therefore I, I trust God with my whole being. That's the question that the first commandment is asking us. And as we study the rest of these commandments throughout the summer, we're going to find ourselves always coming back to the first commandment. Do we trust God when it comes to these commandments in our life? When God tells us to live in a certain way and there's something in us that doesn't want to do it, is there also something in us that says we should trust God more because he's God and he's good? And we trust that he is after our joy. Every time that we're tempted to go against God in his ways, what's happening is we're tempted to follow another God. And so in just the the few minutes I have left, here's what I want to do. I want to talk about how do we follow the first commandment? What do we do? How do we follow this commandment? Because I really believe that In following the first commandment, it really unlocks our ability to follow the rest of them and to understand why the rest of them are good and for our flourishing. So what I'm about to give you is going to be a theme throughout this entire series. I'm going to give us three questions that we need to ask of ourselves. And what you'll find is that we need to go back to these questions over and over and over again. So every single commandment that we study, these are the three questions that we need to go to and ask ourselves, because this is really all about, do we trust that God is good and that his commandments are for our joy? So here's what I have in closing here. Three questions to ask when we're tempted to sin or not follow God's ways. And these are three questions that largely are ineffective unless we ask them in community. These are three questions that are largely ineffective unless we ask them with other people, brothers and sisters in Christ, who know us, who know our stories, and want to help us in following Jesus. Three questions that we need to ask when we feel tempted to sin or not follow God's ways. Here's the first one. Oh, it's so simple, but... We never do it. What is going on inside of me? Oh, this is such an important question that's so easy to ignore or so easy just to brush past really quickly. What is going on inside of me? And the more honest and specific I can be in answering that question, the, the more powerful this particular question is. So let me, let me give you an example that we can run through. Let's say that we find bitterness and anger towards someone welling up in our heart. You know, maybe they you know, posted something or maybe they said something and it just rubbed us the wrong way or we were offended by it, whatever it is. And we just find anger and bitterness and judgment welling up inside of us. So we got to ask the question, what is going on 
inside of me. And, and what's best is to ask this question with other people, especially people who know you, because they can help you answer the question, what is going on inside of me? Because they might be able to help you answer a question and say things like, I think what's happening inside of you is that you trust your anger and the way which you want to deal with this situation more than you trust God in his ways. That, that you actually think that what will contribute to your joy is actually letting this anger run its course more than to deal with it in the way that God says to deal with it. That there's a belief there that in this circumstance, in this situation, my understanding and insight is, is greater, is more informed than, than God's understanding and insight. Now, that's a really humble thing to say that you normally don't get to say unless you do the work in community with other people of what's going on inside of me. Let's ask some questions. Before I ask questions about what they did, before I start to t defend myself, let's just stop in, in this situation. Go, what is going on inside of me? And others can help you answer that question. And once we do it, we can go to question two and ask this, which is, what does God's word say? And here's the thing, is we ask this question all the time when we are struggling or feel tempted to sin. But if we don't ask the first question first, what happens is, is we'll ask what God's word say and we'll apply that to stuff that just don't matter. We'll apply it to stuff, uh, to the situation at hand, but we haven't done the introspective work of what's really going inside my heart. What other gods am I looking to right now? And once I answer that question, then I can go, okay, then what does God's word say about that? Well, one of the Ten Commandments says, do not murder, and Jesus reinterpreted that for us a bit in the Gospels when he said, well, if you even hate your brother in your heart, then you've done that. And, and, you know, Ephesians says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and not to give the devil a foothold and that we should avoid bitterness and judgment. Okay, we've got things that God's word is saying to me in this. And so my question, and again, other people can help me ask this, is do I trust that what God's word said is good? Do I trust God's motivation in giving me these commands, that it's for my joy? It's for my flourishing? Like, do I believe that God is giving me these commands as a loving father who can see way further down the road than I can. And again, asking this question with other people will just help it slice in way more effectively and other people will help you ask, do I really trust what God's word says? Right, God's word says things like, you know, Matthew chapter 18, if your brother has sinned against you, you need to go to him. Whoa, that's gonna be awkward. I know, I know, I know. But God's word says it and he's for your joy. So what's going on inside of you? Why don't you want to do that? Let's, let's dig into this stuff together in community. This is how we follow the first commandment. If we don't wanna follow the first commandment, we avoid this stuff. What other gods am I looking to, right? So we've asked what's going on inside of me. We've asked what does God's word say? Here's the third question. What does it look like to take a risk as an act of worship and sacrifice? Worship and sacrifice inherently means giving up of something that I have out of love and affection and adoration of God. 
giving up something that I have, recognizing his holiness and his glory and his authority. And so what does it look like in this moment to take the stuff that's going on inside of me, trust what God's word has to say, and step out and take a risk as an act of worship and listen and see if God will prove that he's a better steward of your joy than you are. Let's see if God will prove that to us. Let's see if his word is really good. Let's see if these commands really will help us flourish and have joy more than what we think will help us flourish and have joy. Three questions on how we follow commandment one that we're gonna come back to over and over in this series. What is going on inside of me? What does God's word say about that? And then what does it look like to take a risk as an act of worship and sacrifice? We're gonna get far more specific on those questions as we work through these commandments. But here's what I'd like to do right now, just in response to this. And the band, if you guys wanna come up, you guys can. I really just wanna push us today on this question, are we willing, are we willing to do the work of paying attention to what is going on inside of us? Are we willing to do the work of paying attention to what are the other gods that I'm tempted to follow? It's so easy to ignore what is going on inside of us. Because we know the implications if we walk down that road. We know that it will reveal to us the areas where we don't trust God. We know that God is doing that work of sanctification in us, and sometimes we don't want to go through that journey with God. And so it's so easy to avoid this question, what's really going on inside of me? But what we learned in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, is that God is inviting you to do that work not because he's waiting for you to clean yourself up. God is inviting you to do that work, not because he's trying to see what you're made of. God is inviting you into that work because he has already rescued you. He's already forgiven you. He's already created a safe place for you to reveal the sin in your heart so that you, alongside others and the Holy Spirit, can begin to see that sin redeemed and sanctified and rooted out so that you can flourish and experience true joy. And that's what the communion table in front of us is all about. It's a table that we're invited to, to remember and to be reminded what Christ has already done for us. That his body was broken for us so that we won't have to experience the anger and wrath of God. That's why we break bread and we eat it. We're reminded that God is not going to express his wrath against me because I've looked to other gods, but he has forgiven me and is inviting me into a life of that being sanctified and rooted out of me for my joy. We drink the cup of wine or juice because we're reminded of the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross that cleansed us from all of our sin, that we stand before God clean, righteous, holy, and now invited to do the work of seeing sin and these idolatrous ways rooted out of our life. Not so that God will save us. He already has in Christ. 
but so that we can live a joyful life glorifying him. And so what I want to do as we respond to this today is I just want to invite you to ask the question today, what is going on inside of me? I don't know what's going on inside of you. There's lots of stuff going on inside of us. But where are you at today? You know, what are you feeling today? Are you you feeling especially shameful and full of guilt today? Maybe something that happened this week or something that's been going on. You can come to this table and remember that the cross of Christ covers that. And God invites you into a life of following him, having already cleansed you of it. If you're feeling hurt today, angry, bitter, you can give that to the Lord today. What is going on inside of you? You can reveal that to God, come to the table and realize that God loves you, that this doesn't cause him to double back from you, doesn't cause him to second guess if he should have saved you. No, he's inviting you into a new life. The the, the table is a safe place to confess our sin because at the table we realize we've already been cleansed from our sin. What is going on inside of you today? I want you to take a few moments. I want you to reflect on that question. And then when you're ready, whenever you're ready, you can come forward, take some of the bread, take the cup. And I want you to remember the cross of Christ. And then we'll end our time singing together. Let me pray. God, we are thankful for your commands. And we confess that there are so many times, God, that we don't want to follow them. Or there's so many times where we think that our ways and our gut is more trustworthy. We confess that to you. And God, we thank you that even though we do that, you don't take your grace and your mercy away from us. And so God, I pray as we come to the table and we remember the cross of Christ, I pray, God, that you would begin a work in each of us of renewing us, sanctifying us, helping us to confess our sin, follow your ways, and realize, God, that you are a much better steward of our joy than we are that everything that you call us into is good. So God, help us to trust you this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a few moments to reflect. Come forward whenever you're ready.